Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, what's up? And Haley Knopf. Hey, how's it going? Guys, I've got a really important question. Every, usually like once a year, maybe every other year, something will come up on the internet and it just gets people in a real tizzy, um, divides families and friends. And the latest one that I have seen crop up this week do you think there are more doors in the world or more wheels? <laughs> oh, God. It's causing wow. an internet sensation. People cannot agree. Literally just this question? Yes. Just this idea? Of, oh, yeah. Wow. So okay. here's actually how it started. I did read an article to figure out like where this came from. Um, somebody had posted something about it online and said that he was just having a debate with his friends, like that they were at a bar, you know, having some drinks, whatever. And this came up. No one could agree. And the debate got so heated. He took it to the Internet and like wildfire. Now there are camps of people, team doors or team wheels. All right. After much consideration, I'm going team doors. I'm thinking okay. there's more structures in the world than there are vehicles. I don't, I don't know, know about that. Hard I'm to, hard team to pull the logic out. Really? Oh, okay, I love that it. immediately we have a divide. This is great. That's exactly <laughs> what I hoped for. You're tearing <laughs> us apart, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a little chaos agent. Um, this is my final podcast. And it's <laughs> doors versus wheels. Thank you. Um, I would like our listeners to just think about it, but it is intriguing because it seems so straightforward at first where you're like, well, in my apartment, there's a bunch more doors than the four wheels on the car I own. But then you start extrapolating out and realize that wheels are on like, the bottoms of chairs and on all sorts of carts and other devices that we use. It's not just vehicles. And then you start thinking about doors and what counts as a door? Like even the back hatch of a car, like, is that an extra door? Are there are actually five doors on a car. I don't know. Oh, it gets tricky. It gets tricky. They should ask this uh, at the beginning of all Law 360 interviews just to see how people <laughs> see it, watch this squirm. Oh, yeah. it's like a psychological assessment. Are you doors or wheels? Right. Uh, for the record, just to put it out there, I do think I'm doors. Every time I think about it, I come down on the side of doors, but I don't think this actually has an answer. So it is perfect to have a couple of drinks with your friends and hash it out. Oh, man. I can't wait to, to pull this out at the, at the next <laughs> time I go to the bar. Oh, man. Um, but I'm actually going to start us off with a little bit of news this week, if that's good with everybody. Uh, uh, before we get to that, I do want to throw in that we have a little later in the show, a pretty serious segment, but a good one. Um, we talked to Aliza Schatzman. She's an attorney who shares her story with me about how she was harassed during her judicial clerkship. And now she's speaking out about what can be done to better protect law clerks. So a pretty important one later on. I hope everybody sticks around for that. So I'm going to start us off this week with some big news in the world of financial regulation because we like to have fun here at Law 360's Pro Se. <laughs> uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve, which actually just raised interest rates yesterday. But I want to talk about Sarah Bloom Raskin, who was one of President Biden's five nominees to take a seat on the Federal Reserve Board. Now, this week, Raskin withdrew her nomination because one Senate Democrat, and you'll never guess who, joined all 50 Senate Republicans in opposing the nomination due to Raskin's belief that the Fed should take steps to address climate change and its impacts on the U.S. financial system. I would like to remind everyone that I am originally from the state of West Virginia, so... I do, in fact. We know. can, yeah, we can um, probably all guess. Yeah, it was Joe Manchin, right? <laughs> it was indeed Senator Joe Manchin, the centrist Democrat who also has some deep financial ties to the fossil fuel industry. Now, with Manchin withdrawing his support, Raskin no longer had the swing vote that she'd need to overcome unanimous opposition from all 50 Republicans in the currently split Senate. And this is a big deal because the Fed is right now dealing with a 40 year high in inflation. 
And Raskin, who has been on the Fed before, was nominated to be essentially the most powerful banking regulator in the country. Now, nominations to the Fed have failed before. Trump had a pretty controversial pick in 2020 that even some Senate Republicans ultimately opposed. But it's always kind of a black eye for the uh, the administration that puts up these nominees if they ultimately fail. But Raskin's situation stands apart because her nomination actually caused Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee to boycott a vote last month that would have advanced her nomination to the Senate floor for confirmation, which ostensibly she would have had at that time. What exactly was the boycott over? So the main issue here is that Raskin advocates for financial regulators to get aggressive about curbing climate-related risks to the financial system. Interest groups for the energy industry see that as a threat, and Republican lawmakers worry that those efforts could be turning banks against producers of fossil fuels. Now, that said, Republicans are claiming that the boycott itself is uh, actually has to do with some ethical considerations, uh, dealing with Raskin's prior work for a Colorado fintech company. They say that she used her influence as a former governor of the Fed to get that company preferential treatment, even though to date there's been no evidence of that at all. But what's critical here is that in the delay that was caused by the boycott, a lot of stuff has changed. Uh, A war broke out, Russia invaded Ukraine, and therefore oil prices started to soar. And some more worrying inflation data came out. And all of that may have been enough to push Manchin, who loves fossil fuel and hates inflation, to the other side. Yeah, this has definitely been one to watch because it is such an important appointment. But what happens next? I mean, like you said before, it's always a little bit of a black eye when a White House has a key nominee not make it through. Where are they going to take it from here? Right. So, I mean, with Raskin's nomination coming off of the table, the Senate Banking Committee did vote on Wednesday to push three other Biden picks through to, uh, to try to fill out the Fed. And that includes Jerome Powell, who's coming back for a second term as uh, the chairman of the Fed. So the White House is now going to have to make another nomination to fill the slot that Raskin was supposed to take. But Biden might have to be a little bit more tempered now with who he's picking, because right now his administration is trying to push a climate focus in a lot of financial regulation spots. Um, That includes the SEC that is currently missing two commissioners while simultaneously trying to push a big emphasis on environmental related disclosures. So whoever's going to be slotted in for this next Fed job might need to be a little bit more on the moderate side, at least outwardly, to try to avoid some of these hangups in getting regulators seated at a really critical time. And on that note, I mean, like I said, the SEC is trying to do this as well. So the calculus behind who gets a nomination under the Biden administration might have just gotten a little bit more complicated. That'll be interesting to watch. So let's turn now to the entertainment world, and which we all here on the podcast love to to follow. Unfortunately, this one is a it's a pretty sad story. So actor Alec Baldwin is looking to be cleared um, in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, um, which happened on the movie Rust last fall. He laid out his version of what happened leading up to the incident, as well as a number of legal defenses in a recent arbitration demand. This is an interesting one for us to tackle. I mean, I followed it um, just as a observer of all things pop culture and stuff that's going on in Hollywood when it was happening. But now it's definitely definitively turned into a legal story where we're talking about liability here. So let's recap what happened with the shooting that's led us into court proceedings. So 42-year-old Hutchins was killed and director Joel Souza was injured when a gun held by Baldwin was discharged during a rehearsal in October. The movie was being filmed in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, And there's a lot going on here as far as what happened leading up to the shooting and who's being blamed. But I think what's most important to note 
is that a sizable portion of the camera crew walked off the set just hours before the incident. They were reportedly protesting the working conditions on the low-budget film, um, and at least one camera operator had made complaints specifically about gun safety. Oh, yikes. I did not realize that. Yeah, not good. Uh, The family of Hutchins has blamed Alec Baldwin and other producers, saying her death could have been prevented if they had followed basic protocols and taken gun safety a little more seriously. The filmmakers should have been treating all guns as if they were loaded, should never have pointed a gun at anything they didn't intend to destroy, should have kept guns unloaded unless absolutely necessary to use for a scene, and should have performed a visual inspection of guns to make sure they were not loaded, according to the family's lawsuit. So I think in the aftermath of all this, I do remember, you know, there's that kind of famous photo of Alec Baldwin right after the shooting looking really distraught. Um, and I know he's been pretty vocal uh, about this incident. What did he say kind of immediately in the aftermath of the shooting? He So he says that um, the assistant director, Dave Halls, um, called out, quote, cold gun as he handed the pistol to Baldwin. And Hall supposedly took the gun off of a prop cart that had been prepared by the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was in charge of gun safety and managing the firearm props. Baldwin said that he had trusted that the gun was either empty or contained so-called dummy rounds, which have a projectile but no charge. Baldwin then sat on a church pew and aimed the gun toward the camera as Hutchins worked to set up a close-up shot of the firearm. Hutchins told him to pull back the hammer to cock the gun, but when he let the hammer go, the gun went off. That's according to Baldwin. So what exactly is he arguing in defense? Because that kind of lays out the facts of what he says happened, but that's not quite the same as this issue of like, is he liable regardless? So so what's he saying on that front? He He's saying quite a bit. Um, he said he has safely handled guns on the sets of dozens of movies and TV shows was following gun safety training um, on Russ's set when the shooting happened. He said um, in his arbitration demand that two things are clear. Quote, someone is culpable for chambering the live round that led to this horrific tragedy, and it is someone other than Baldwin. Baldwin is an actor. Um, And that's pretty key to all of his arguments here. He's saying it is not the actor's responsibility to check that the gun was cold, That responsibility lies with the set's armor, according to Baldwin. Um, He argued that he wasn't the one who announced the gun was cold. He didn't load the gun. He didn't check the bullets. He didn't purchase the bullets. He wasn't in charge of firearm safety. And he didn't hire the people who were supposed to be in charge of that or who supplied the bullets or checked the gun or any of those things. Um, And Baldwin also said that his production contract protects him from financial responsibility for any damage or negligence claim related to the production. Um, He filed the arbitration demand against Rust Movie Productions LLC and fellow producer Ryan Smith, who was primarily responsible for the film's day-to-day operations, according to Baldwin, and he's seeking indemnification, damages, and attorney fees. Wow. Well, it feels like the, I don't know, sort of the obvious... You know, people who would want to be pursuing some liability claims or something like that here would be Hutchins's family. I mean, what, what are they saying about all of this? The family's attorney said in a statement that Baldwin is trying to avoid liability and accountability for his reckless actions. But it is important to note that the family suit is just one of many that Baldwin is facing in the shooting's wake. So 
it'll it puts a lot more pressure on this arbitration demand and it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Eliza Schatzman is an attorney in Washington, D.C., who previously served as a law clerk in D.C. Superior Court. During that time, she faced harassment by a judge. Now she's speaking out about the institutional barriers that hinder clerks looking for help when they're in a similar situation. Welcome to the podcast, Eliza. Thanks for coming on the show. It's really important that you're willing to share your account of how the judicial system is failing its law clerks. Thanks for having me on the show. So let's talk about your time clerking for a D.C. Superior Court judge. Just tell me about your experiences. What happened during that that era of your life? Sure. So I served as a law clerk in D.C. Superior Court, which is D.C.'s local trial court during the 2019 to 2020 term. Um, I dreamed of being a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office since I started law school. And D.C. AUSAs appear before D.C. judges, which is how I selected the clerkship. Unfortunately, beginning just weeks into the clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked would throw me out of the courtroom, tell me I made him uncomfortable, and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. Uh, he told me I was bossy and aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. A couple hours after I found out I passed the D.C. bar exam in October 2019, he called me into his inner chambers, got in my face, and told me, you're bossy, and I know bossy because my wife is bossy. I cried on the walk to work every morning, cried in the bathroom, cried myself to sleep at night. I just desperately wanted to be reassigned to a different judge for the remainder of the clerkship. I wish there was a place where I could go to report the harassment without fear of retaliation, but the D.C. courts didn't have an employee dispute resolution plan in place that would have provided for a reassignment. We eventually transitioned to remote work during the COVID-19 pandemic in March, and the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. So I called DC Court's HR and I told them what had happened. And they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate DC judges. They asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? Whoa. So it took me probably about a year to get back on my feet. Um, I eventually secured my dream job in the DC US Attorney's Office. I was two weeks into training at the DC USAO when I got a couple devastating calls that altered the course of my legal career and probably my life. I was told that the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and my job offer was being revoked. Yeah, this is such a harrowing story because it does continue forward. It's not one comment or an isolated thing that happened. It seems like it was a, a real ongoing problem in your life. So this is such a, a harrowing story, but I think that many women can identify with many parts of this. I mean, when when you said the word bossy, I've heard that my whole life. It's not great. I think a lot of these things are unfortunately fairly common. What can a clerk do, particularly in the job you had in the D.C. court system, in the face of harassment or misconduct like this? I know you said that you tried HR. Um, was there anything else that you were able to accomplish in terms of reporting? What are the systems in place? Sure. So 
At the time my clerkship ended, there was no employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place. By the time I circled back with the DC courts a year later to report the negative reference with the U.S. Attorney's Office, they had instituted a plan that they've revised several times since then. So the major reporting options for both D.C. law clerks and federal clerks, and there are some similarities and some differences between them, are employee dispute resolution, or EDR, and a formal judicial complaint. In D.C., that's with the Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. So I'll talk about EDR first. So EDR is the Internal Workplace Dispute Resolution Plan, uh, where any employee can complain about harassment by a coworker, a supervisor. When law clerks utilize this plan, the best option is to be reassigned to a different judge for the remainder of the clerkship. But there are a lot of issues with this plan, and I'll just highlight a couple um, because lots of other folks have discussed this before. The most important problem with EDR, and the judiciary likes to tout this as like its catch-all solution to harassment in the judiciary, EDR does not offer financial remedies. And I think that is the biggest problem and the biggest reason why law clerks need to be protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, where they'd be able to sue judges and seek damages. By the time folks are seeking EDR with the courts, it's because they've been harassed, they've potentially been terminated, or they're harassed until they quit. Um, Even for those who are able to complete the clerkship, they may struggle to find a job because the judge is maliciously working against them by giving them negative references or they report their reputations. Yeah. Yeah. In your situation, exactly. EDR would not have offered you any remedies because your clerkship was finished and, and the problem you were having was ongoing reputational issues related to that clerkship. Yes. Yes. But I mean, the biggest issue with EDR is the lack of financial remedies, but it's also overseen by judges. Uh, retired judges in the D.C. courts, active judges, if you file a federal complaint under the um, under the federal plan, um, which I think is also a huge problem because it creates, at the very least, the appearance of, if not an actual conflict of interest, to have former judges investigating their judiciary colleagues. Um, there are other issues with EDR. For example, you can't have law clerks use this because they're seeking a reassignment, but you're not guaranteed that you'll be reassigned to a different judge while you're engaging in this process. So you could theoretically file a complaint against the judge who's harassing you and then have to go work with him every day for several months while you're engaging in this lengthy process. Yeah, it's a big risk. It is. It is. It really, um, the fear of retaliation absolutely chills complaints against judges, both EDR complaints and formal complaints. And the last thing I'll say about EDR is that law clerks need to hire attorneys to engage in this process. That is difficult to do for several reasons. It's tough to finance on a law clerk salary. And if you've just been fired and you have no salary, how are you going to do that? And a lot of attorneys are hesitant to take on EDR cases, both because there are no financial remedies available and also because they're nervous about going up against a judge in the jurisdiction where he's going to preside over their cases and they fear retaliation against their existing clients. Right. So that is the EDR process. Well, yeah, let's turn to the formal complaint process. That seems to me like on the face of it, some of the things you've already outlined may also be in play there. The Entry barriers for clerks who are filing the complaints seem like they'd be pretty similar to the problems faced in EDR. What other issues do you see with with that as a potential avenue? Um, So the formal judicial complaint process in D.C., the commission that handles these complaints uh, is called the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. And the biggest threshold issue with the commission is that they handle both uh, misconduct investigations against judges 
and also judicial reappointments because D.C. judges, while Senate confirmed, serve for 15-year terms, at which point they are considered for reappointment by the commission, which basically uses a rubber stamping function. The vast majority of judges who seek reappointment or appointment to senior status are confirmed to those positions. So it really creates the appearance of, if not an actual conflict of interest. Another issue with the commission is that it's staffed primarily by judges and attorneys who interact with judges, and a bunch of the commissioners have been reappointed many times. Again, the biggest issue is that judges should not be investigating their judiciary colleagues, even if it's retired judges, even if they don't know the judge. It's just it creates the appearance of a conflict and it shouldn't happen. So Congress has, in fact, taken some looks at this particular problem, though not in the D.C. court system. They've looked at it in the federal system and introduced the Judiciary Accountability Act. That would bolster some protections. Do you think that that would um, make a dent in this problem, at least on the federal court level? It absolutely would. The Judiciary Accountability Act or the JAA is an excellent piece of legislation. Um, I mean, it has three distinct parts, which are worth briefly discussing. The first part is that it would enable uh, law clerks to sue judges under Title VII. The federal judiciary is currently exempt. Um, This makes it distinct from even Congress, where members of Congress are subject to and staffers are protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So that's extremely important. But it also does two other things. It creates real accountability for judicial misconduct by creating a confidential reporting system, by um, clarifying that if a judge retires, resigns, or dies, the misconduct investigation into them won't cease. Uh, it creates a special counsel would help with some of these investigations. And then the third aspect of the JAA, which I think is very important, is data collection and publication. It would finally force the judiciary to collect and publish data on workplace conduct. They are just notoriously like refusing to conduct a workplace culture assessment. It would also collect and publish data on formal judicial complaints and diversity and clerkship hiring. And those are areas that are just notoriously shrouded in secrecy. So it's a good bill. Yes. So this week, Congress is actually having hearings on this. We're recording on Wednesday. They're having hearings tomorrow. Um, I know that you've written a statement for those hearings. And I I think a lot of it is outlining your story that you've shared with us today, but also pushing for this legislation to, in fact, apply to D.C. courts Can you tell me a little bit more about why you think it should apply in D.C.? Sure. So the D.C. judiciary is unique because uh, D.C. judges are Senate confirmed. They're appointed by the president. They are confirmed by the Senate. They serve for 15 year terms. So the D.C. courts are when we think of federal judges, we think of Article three judges pursuant to Article three, the Constitution. And those folks have life tenure or tenure during good behavior. They can only be removed by congressional impeachment, which almost never happens. D.C. judges serve 15-year terms. So some of them do not get a second 15-year term, but they do get a lot of protections from their Senate-confirmed status. Uh, These are Article I courts or legislative courts. Um, So the interesting thing about the D.C. court system is that, oh, there are other Article I courts that heard of that come up on this podcast sometimes, the Court of Federal Claims, the Bankruptcy Courts, the Tax Courts. The Court of Federal Claims is specifically enumerated in the JAA, and those folks would be covered under the bill. So I think the D.C. courts should be covered because they're also an Article I court. Um, So what have you heard about how Congress is viewing this issue? I mean, I know we haven't had the hearing yet, but 
Have you had any, any interactions or insight into what some of the leaders in the House might be thinking about this bill? The bill, I don't think, is getting the attention it deserves, which is why I'm here today speaking about this issue. It's why I'm going a bunch of other places to write and speak about this issue. It's why I've submitted my statements. I really think the issue of harassment in the judiciary and the JAA have not gotten the attention they deserve. The bill has, the House bill has 12 co-sponsors. I'm heartened that Congresswoman Madeline Dean, my home state congresswoman, and Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, my current congresswoman, are both early co-sponsors. So that's great. Um, but it's it's an uphill battle. The Judicial Conference and the Administrative Office for the U.S. Courts strongly oppose this bill, and those are powerful lobbies. So I'm here hoping to represent law clerks and maybe a less powerful but equally important lobby. Yeah, I mean, I, part of the battle with anything on Capitol Hill is just getting enough people to pay attention to an issue to take a stand one way or another. So that's certainly a, an initial hurdle. But I am glad that Congress is holding this hearing. It's very important. It's been a long time coming. Um, and I just really think that the most important messengers on this issue are law clerks sharing their personal stories, which is, again, why I'm here, why I'm encouraging other law clerks to speak out. I really just want to put personal face and my personal story to this issue and explain why this is so urgently necessary. I know Congress has a lot going on right now, but Judiciary employees, including law clerks, cannot wait another year for these urgently needed reforms. So you've done a great job of explaining why this is such an important issue. And we've talked kind of big picture about policy that could help address the issue. But there may be law clerks right this second listening to this podcast who are facing similar harassment to what you had to endure. What kind of advice would you give them? Right now, while we're in this middle period where this JAA has not passed, what would you say to those clerks out there that might be struggling? Well, ultimately, I would say speak out, file a complaint, file a formal complaint, file an internal EDR complaint, stand up for yourself. I know that it is terrifying and retaliation and reputational harm are very real fears, but we need just a groundswell of complainants speaking out so our concerns will finally be taken seriously and the judiciary can't continue to bury their heads in the sand on this. But in terms of smaller steps, If you are being harassed by your employer, take notes, keep records, forward emails to yourself, confide in folks both in your workplace and outside your workplace, and keep track of who you've confided in because they can be helpful to you down the road. And talk to an attorney. I know that's difficult. I'm exceedingly grateful for everything my attorneys have done for me. And I hope someday I'll be in a position where I can help other law clerks seeking legal representation to get connected with employment attorneys who can help. Um, but ultimately, it's about speaking out, sharing our stories, and just making clear this is an urgent and underaddressed issue. I know it feels like the judiciary is fighting against us. But I'm here to say that mine is a story of empowerment. I want law clerks to hear my story and feel empowered to speak out to file complaints, to work, to move more harassers from the bench. Um, Harassment shouldn't be tolerated in any workplace and certainly not in the judiciary. Thanks so much for coming and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We 
like to end our show with something offbeat. And I want to talk about celebrity name dropping. Uh, it's a game I love to play. The few rare instances that I have any ability to do so. Seems a little ubiquitous to do it for kind of trivial stuff. Like you want to see if you can get into a trendy restaurant or impress somebody at a party. But every now and then somebody name drops to help seal a business deal. And that can go really wrong. Oh, no. Yeah. So the one I want to talk about today is involves a cannabis company called P&S Ventures. They say a man named Reed Drescher did just that. Dropped a lot of celebrity names, bolstered his own sort of bona fides in that way. And that didn't work out. Well, I don't know any Reed Drescher, but that last name certainly sounds familiar. Oh, Dean, I'm so glad you said that because I did want to say if Drescher is ringing bells, there's one of two reasons, probably. One, if you are a Bravo-holic like me, you might know that Reed Drescher is married to Aviva Drescher, who used to be on The Real Housewives of New York. The other one that maybe more people would get is Reed is cousins with Fran Drescher, who starred in the sitcom The Nanny. Awesome. Did you guys watch the nanny? the nanny? I definitely yeah. did back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I've caught more than my fair share of episodes on like reruns late at night. So here's what Reed did. There's this cannabis company. It sued him for allegedly lying about $5.4 million and how he said he had that on hand to buy out one of the company's co-founders. Here's what the cannabis company said in their complaint. Touting his relationship with celebrities, including his cousin Fran Drescher, the star of The Nanny, and his wife Aviva Drescher of Bravo's The Real Housewives of New York, Reed Drescher claimed to have deep pockets and a roster of powerful business and celebrity connections that would propel PNS Ventures to the next level. Why does this sound like such a cliche of film producers or, or like producers in general who have, or I don't know, all business people who feel like they have to come in and like kind of schmooze and just be like, oh, I got this guy in my back pocket, this guy, in, I don't know. It's, it's become such a cliche. This is why we're all journalists and we're yeah. not like titans of business, right? Like we're in, <laughs> we don't have names to drop. We've got nothing here. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't, it turned out it wasn't great what he was claiming because uh, according to this company, it really just wasn't true. I mean, he is connected to those people, but it had no impact on what he was able to bring to the table business-wise. Right. So, yeah, the complaint says, <laughs> based on Reed's representations, that he was this guy with deep pockets and lots of contacts, that they agreed not to pursue other opportunities with other investment groups. They kind of got talked into thinking he was a great idea. And they allege that, quote, before the ink on the party's contracts were dry, that Reed had already gone into default on providing that promised $5.4 million in capital funding. And as of the filing of the complaint, he had only paid $1.3 million under that agreement. Just didn't follow through. I maybe needs to call some of his celebrity friends to help fund this business venture. But yeah, yeah. according to the complaint, there was a lot of damages based on this that... Um, PNS was forced into receivership and did come out of that. But then Reed tried to block and interfere with them getting additional funding because he said he had approval rights. So a lot of back and forth about what happened after that. But the bottom line of this is, you know, maybe don't believe when someone just drops celebrity names. I think that's the well, takeaway I'm having. Especially if they're affiliated with the Housewives franchise, because doesn't every iteration of Housewives have like someone's husband has done this in every city in America. <laughs> You're so right, Haley. And I would also like to point this out for any other Bravo-holics like me that are listening. I don't know what's worse. Reed lying about having the cash to buy a part of this cannabis company. Or if you recall his wife at all, you will remember <laughs> that her big moment on Real Housewives of New York is that she has a prosthetic leg and in the middle of a fight with someone, 
She took it off and chucked it at them. Oh my <laughs> so oh. I haven't gotten to New York yet and now I'm so Oh excited. Haley much awaits you in New York City. Um, <laughs> let me just say there were some real memorable moments. Let's go with memorable moments. Yeah, I think this is fun because of the fact that he's trying to I don't know prove that you know he can get funding secured and all of this by proving his connection to like the least stable people on reality TV is what it feels like. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if I see yeah. the connection there. <laughs> I mean, I guess any celebrity will do. Um, that's kind of the takeaway, I think. But yeah, I mean, maybe maybe don't get into any deals after this with somebody who knows a reality star and a former sitcom star. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest, Aliza Schatzman, and contributing reporters, John Hill, Lauren Berg, and Katrina Pereira. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to know more about all of the things we've discussed today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.